I specifically remember a practice where I'm just kind of standing there and and we're going against uh, the offense and it was my turn up and it wasn't anything special. We were doing some run plays or whatever and we went live for a little bit and and I don't know what it was. I was I was just kind of like, you know, I'm tired of sitting behind all these guys and so I kind of just started to step it up and, and went through a few plays or whatever in my mind, it was a big deal because Coach Paulson just stopped stopped the practice in that little area and was just kind of staring at me, kind of like, you know, where did that come from? In other words, where has this been all this time? <laughs> right. And uh, I, I wasn't, I didn't think anything much. And I was just like, uh, I don't know, I'm just. And so he kind of looked at me like, you know. Uh, let's do this again so we went through it a few more times and I remember him just kind of he didn't say anything to me but he just kind of looked at me like you know if, if you can do that all the time then uh, you've got what it takes welcome to Grizz Grace, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions with Colton Juanas. I am Ryan Tutel. And in this episode, Coulter, uh, if you were going to be an underclassman starting on a 1995 National Championship Grizzly football team, you had to be pretty good. Jason Crebo was better than pretty good. He's one of the all-time greats to traffic through what is a hallowed lineage of linebackers at the University of Montana. During the 1990s, early 2000s, Helena Capital was an absolute football factory, and Jason Crebo, one of the great players to come out of Helena Capital, and as soon as he arrived at the University of Montana, burst out of the scene. He had an outstanding redshirt year that helped earn him the hallowed number 37 jersey. This was in the early days of the 37 jersey, so at that moment, it had been Craig Paulson, Tim Houck, Todd Erickson, the only three guys that have won it, so he was stepping into gigantic shoes, including the first linebacker to wear number 37 at the University of Montana, and during that sophomore season, he 100% lived up to the hype. One of the great outside linebackers to ever play at the University of Montana. He was a first-team All-Big Sky and first-team All-American selection as a sophomore, which led him then to being one of, I think, less than 40 guys in the history of the Big Sky Conference to be three-time first-team All-League selections. That 95 season as a sophomore anchored Montana's defense. 71 tackles, five sacks, nine tackles for loss. That's not including the playoffs, and he perhaps had his best games in the playoffs, particularly against Georgia Southern when Montana smacked that triple option, and he was absolutely a key to that. And this one was a a surreal episode for me, Gus, because when I was a little kid, if you would ask me who the greatest football player on the planet was, I would have said Lawrence Taylor. If you would ask me who the second greatest football player on the planet was, I would have said Jason Crebo. I loved him. Thought he was the just the absolute man. He was one of my absolute favorite Grizzlies of all time. So it was great catching up with him, sitting in a completely different seat as sort of pure men remembering great uh, m- memories from each of our lives, even though they were far apart uh, at that moment in time. But a guy that was incredibly humble, too. He walked away from the game sort of abruptly and dedicated himself to his faith. And he lives in a very small town in Canada. But he talked all about that entire transition and how it wasn't necessarily that he lost the love of the game. He just found a different calling. And I think that it explained what has been sort of a mystery to a lot of Montana fans for a really long time. But regardless, Jason Crebo, absolutely one of the most unforgettable players to ever play at the University of Montana. This was a pleasure catching up with him. Please enjoy. This episode of Grizz Grace with former number 37, national champion linebacker from the University of Montana, Jason Crebo. Jason, 
thank you so much for being here. We're very excited to go through uh, the history of you with the with the Grizzlies and and where you're at now and what that season was like in your entire tenure there. But let's go back to the state capital, shall we? And Helena, and you played at Helena Capital High School. Foot, you were such a great football player. When did you get into the game? What was it that you sparked football in you? Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Just say it's an honor to, to kind of speak on behalf of, of that 95 team. Yeah, you know, uh, if I was to start off, uh, my dad actually put me into football a year, oh, I think maybe even almost two years early. You know, I don't know if that's the case now, but back then you could, if your dad was the coach, you could get on the team. So I, I, I remember getting beat up by 11 and 12-year-olds when I was like 10. And so I kind of had an early start. Obviously, I, I didn't really enjoy it, to be honest, looking back, uh, getting beat up. But, you know, looking back, that was probably the thing that helped me be successful early on is, is kind of taking my lickings early on. And, and then by the time I was one of the older guys, I was pretty experienced, I guess. Helena for so long has produced great athletes, but it seemed as if in that moment, you know, late 80s up through the early 2000s, there were so many good players coming out of Helena, both Helena High and Helena Capital. Is there anything you could point to? I mean, was success just breeding success, or was there any factor that you guys shared? Or why do you think there were so many great, especially defensive players coming out of the capital city? You know, I, I don't know if I could point to one specific thing. I mean, Helen is a, is a football town, I would say. I mean, there's some good basketball there, but, you know, I think uh, there's just a lot of good football players. And I think, especially with Capital, they were kind of known uh, from the 80s with the Petrino days and and even going into nights with us, just being tough with Coach Tuss. And so I think, um, especially the Capital, I don't want to speak against the Bengals, but we did, they were just some tough guys back then, some farm boys. And, and so I remember kind of walking into that atmosphere and, and just kind of that mentality of being tough. And so um, I would say kind of that mentality of just hard-nosed football, and that came from kind of Coach Tuss and some of the coaches then. So I, that's what I remember about those days kind of coming in. There was an, an expectation that, you know, capital – was going to going to rival CMR and some of these teams because of our toughness. You, you mentioned Jim Tuss and the the legends of high school football in Montana. It's so fascinating to me because Montana is such a great pay, place to live. So so often you get these guys who are coaches who get jobs and then stay there for mm-hmm. 10, 20, 30, maybe even 40 years. No one has any real desire to move so you can build these awesome programs. I know Jim Tuss did that at, at Helena Capital before passing it on uh, to, to Coach Sampson and others after him. But what do you remember about his style, and how much did that influence your football life when you were just a kid? Yeah, yeah I mean, most people, I think, when they think of Coach Tuss, he, he, was, he was pretty hard-nosed, a little bit old school. Uh, but he was he was a very intelligent coach. I mean, even as a high school player, looking back, you know, as hard-nosed as he was, I mean, he was very a tech technician about the, the game. And so I think probably that old-school approach, he found out what worked. Um, and obviously a lot of his coaches stayed with him. I mean, 
those are the days where guys would coach for, for many years and stick together. And so he kind of had built a program, and it was just a machine. And so every year, you know, guys would get plugged in and, and kind of follow suit with the, the classes ahead of them. And so I think he kind of built that, that image and that program that way. And I think he was kind of innovative. I was an, I was an offensive guy, but uh, just on his approach to the game. So those are the things I remember on him. And, you know, I think he, he had the respect of his players. There's probably a little bit of fear. I, I have some stories about that, that there was respect for authority. And, and so, you know, I think that just kind of was what made the program go at the time and kind of built the steam. So, yeah, that's, that's what I would say was kind of the main thing about him. And, you know, I, I got to meet him before he passed away on a personal level, and he was just a good man. And uh, um, probably that part of him is more the lasting effect of just seeing the man behind the coach that, that I really appreciated about him. You know, Jason there in, in Helena, kind of equidistant, right, between Montana and Montana State. But coming there in the early 90s, Don Reed, you know, pretty well established as the head coach of the Grizzlies six, seven years at the point that you were graduating from Helena Capital. What brought you to the University of Montana out of high school? Yeah, you know, it's kind of crazy. We There wasn't a lot of, I guess, publicity. And um, obviously you read everything in the newspaper, but I don't remember a lot of, hype and stuff with the Grizz and the Cats and I think I maybe made one Grizz Cat game when I was in high school I think I might have went with Andy Larson he's a good friend of mine and so um, I didn't know either one really how they were doing in high school until I got to the recruiting process and so um, to be honest I was heavily influenced by Andy um, Billy Cockhill, obviously, who was a, a Capitol High graduate that went there. Um, and so that that weighed heavy on my decision. I didn't have any reference to, to Montana State as far as guys that have gone there, other than Lee Carter, who uh, Lon Carter was, was my teacher. And so I knew, knew of him a little bit. But um, when I made a choice to go to Montana, it was kind of more about staying home uh, knowing some capital guys that have gone there and just uh, having comfort in that. That was probably the, one of the two things that, that made me choose that school. You know, it's interesting, though, because when you got to the University of Montana, you you know, you played four seasons, you know, starting with your redshirt freshman season, and you wore the number 37 for four years, which not very many have ever done. And so the legacy that you kind of stepped to and then also created and, and, and brought with you at the University of Montana is significant. Was that – do you think about that in the context of not having this long history of guys who are sort of indoctrinated into the University of Montana and, and, and football from the time that they're born, whether it's family or whatever it is, that you kind of got into that about the point that you went to the university? Yeah, you know, it is interesting. You know, there was a little bit of history with 37, obviously with Coach Paulson and, and Tim Houck, but I, I didn't grow up knowing that. I didn't go to the games – like probably a lot of the kids do now. And so, yeah, when I first learned of it, when I got there, I knew it was a big deal. And so I didn't think much about 
you know, getting a number early on that I was going to wear for four years, I was, I was actually pretty nervous and I knew the expectation. I, I was more kind of like, you know, I don't want to let these guys down. Um, the guys that have made the number what it is. And so when, when Rico gave me that number, <clears throat> I was, I was not, I wasn't going to decline it, but I thought, man, are you sure I'm the guy? I was going into my freshman year. I had mono. I'd lost like 40 pounds. And that, my mindset was, was far from being success on the field at the time. I was just trying to get some playing time. And so as I look back, I think the number was, was probably good for me in the sense it motivated me that, you know, I've got to do something with this career. I can't let these guys down. And they gave me this number. Was there a level of pressure? Because like you said, I mean, there, there had been a couple guys that had worn it before you, Craig Paulson, Tim Houck, Todd Erickson. But now it's such this larger-than-life thing, and oftentimes the guys that get it, so much of their time and effort is spent living up to this legacy. Do you remember there being a, an element of pressure with the number, or what, what was just the dynamic of actually donning the jersey? Yeah, you know, maybe it was probably pressure from myself, and I did that a lot. I'm going to put a lot of pressure on myself, and I think you kind of have to to be successful. I had some expectations personally, but that number was, it wasn't what it was now as far as publicity-wise and the legacy and all that stuff. It, it was more in-house that everybody knew on the team, especially because there's so many Montana guys, what that number represented. And obviously, with the success, really, I think Tim was was the guy that that made that number in the sense of how he played and then going on to the, to the next level in the NFL. And then Rico kind of followed that up with, you know, how well he did, and, and he did get a chance in the NFL also. So that was kind of the in-house mentality that at that time was like, hey, the two guys really that had it before you were all Americans. Um, they both went to the NFL. And so that's kind of how I looked at it. It's like this isn't just a number with Montana. It's the guys that have wore this have have wore it well, and uh, they actually, you know, did something. And so that's kind of how I took it is, you know, not only being a Montana guy, but I, I better – I better make the number proud and, and uphold it. And not just from a personal standpoint, but just to try to follow suit with those guys. You know, when you go from from high school football to the Division One level, it's a significant jump. And especially like you were mentioning, you, you, you come down with this terrible sickness. You lose a bunch of weight. You're just trying to get through that. As you as you got over mono and start you know building your your strength and your health back up and then you know eventually start playing football was there a moment where you said okay I know that I I have the the ability to play at this level or was it you know is, was it intimidating at first or would you did, did something happen where you go okay I think I can do this yeah you know it's interesting I maybe most guys would say. No, there's not a specific time, but I I do have a specific time. And I don't know if Coach Paulson remember this. It was that redshirt freshman year. I think I was third or fourth on the depth chart. I was just kind of starting to feel good physically. And we were into the season a little bit, I think, already. And so there was a guy even in my class that was ahead of me 
at the linebacker position, but I specifically remember a practice where I'm just kind of standing there and and we're going against uh, the offense and it was my turn up and it wasn't anything special. We were doing some run plays or whatever and we went live for a little bit and and I don't know what it was. I was I was just kind of like, you know, I'm tired of sitting behind all these guys. And so I kind of just started to step it up and, and went through a few plays or whatever. In, in my mind, it was a big deal because Coach Paulson just stopped stopped the practice in, in that little area and was just kind of staring at me, kind of like, you know, where did that come from? In other words where has this been all this time? <laughs> right. And uh, I, I wasn't, I didn't think anything much of it. I was just like, uh, I don't know. I'm just, and so he kind of looked at me like, you know, uh, let's do this again. So we went through it a few more times and I remember him just kind of, he didn't say anything to me. He just kind of looked at me like, you know, if, if you can do that all the time, then uh, you've got what it takes. And I think, you know, really from that practice, that just gave me a, a huge boost of confidence um, that I actually could uh, perform. And then, yeah, the rest is kind of history as far as, you know, I became the backup to, to Danny Downs as a redshirt freshman and just kind of watched him for the rest of the year and got a little bit of playing time here and there. Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions, is sponsored by First Security Bank and Coulter. While First Security has long been a supporter of the University of Montana and UM Athletics, people might be surprised to know how much First Security Bank, in fact, influenced the University of Montana program and the path they were on directly. Back in 1993, the Grizz were on their way to their second-ever berth in the Division I AA playoffs. Previously, in 1989, the only other time Montana had made it to the Division I AA playoffs. And at that time, first-round home games awarded via a bidding process. And so to help support the Grizz football team, as well as fortify the faith throughout the community of Missoula, Bill Boucher, former president of First Security Bank, stepped up to the table to help the University of Montana guarantee any potential revenue lost for the first round of the playoffs. And of course, that was recouped in a big way as the University of Montana in 1993 then started the first of 17 straight playoff berths. And in 1995, that local optimism was turned into national prominence as Montana made a run all the way to the 1995 National Championship. First Security Bank is proud to sponsor Grizz Greats and this 25 part podcast series commemorating the silver anniversary of the 1995 national champions for security bank a proud supporter of grizz athletics and the university of montana talking to a lot of the guys that are that were uh, up and coming during the 93 and 94 seasons it's so interesting because 95 is remembered with so much reverence and of course they are of course you guys are you won the national championship but there, there were some really, really good teams at Montana, 93 and 94 as well. It seems to me that those teams sort of set the stage for 1995. So your first year at the University of Montana in 1993 when you're redshirting, that team was a great team. Uh, they went to the playoffs, and it was sort of this beginning of this great run for the Grizz that turned into 17 straight playoff berths and all the other things the Montana program accomplished. But when you were watching that squad from the sideline, what sort of influence did that have on your mentality going forward, and what do you just remember about that team? Yeah, you know, talent-wise, I mean, some guys would argue, obviously, 
uh, all the different teams. But that that class of Danny Downs, Kurt Schilling, and some of those other guys, uh, obviously uh, Erickson and those guys were, were seniors, and Downs and Schilling and those guys were juniors. But uh, well, that, that was a talented team. Um, looking back, um, I, I, I would argue maybe one of the most talented Obviously, Dave was younger at the time, and obviously he was successful that year. But I remember going into that Youngstown game on the road, the semis. We had lost to to Boise State, which was pretty loaded that year. But I think that team was a championship-level team. I know Dave got hurt that that semifinal, so Bert came in, um, which he was a good quarterback. But... And you could argue maybe uh, we we got homered a little bit in that game. It was it was super cold. But I, I just when I look at you know we can argue um, the class above me is one of the greater recruiting classes of that time. But those two classes with Erickson and and uh, Downs and those guys that that was a, a to me that team was loaded for sure. Yeah, Jason, this is interesting, too, because then you go into the 95 season, and we all know what happened. That's why we're doing this. But also, uh, that's your first year starting, you know? And so as you go on as, as one of the few underclassmen, you know, that's that's actually starting for the football team, and that season starts to build, you have a near miss at Washington State. I know the story of that football game a little bit, but yeah. you you knew that it's a very, very good football team. What what was your experience of your place in that though, as a guy who's now starting but is still you know a sophomore amongst juniors and seniors? Yeah, I was definitely the young guy. I guess let me clarify too. I don't want to mix the years up. I think Todd Rico were maybe a couple years ahead of Danny, but um, on those teams. But anyways, yeah, you know I was the young guy. I think being the backup the year before and playing with Boucher and Sermon. And that class ahead of me definitely helped. We we got some chemistry, even though I was a younger guy. I think they kind of accepted me and, and knew that the following year it was kind of our time. And so going into that next sophomore, sophomore year, and those guys being juniors, we, we had kind of built some chemistry. And I, I kind of felt a part of of that class in some ways. Not that I was leaving my class alone, but. I definitely felt the young, uh, being the young guy, but I, I kind of, I wasn't really, I wouldn't say I was a leader of that defense by any means. I think I just kind of followed Boucher and Sermon, those guys, and and that that class was a great class. I mean, our, our whole defense was pretty much that junior class that year with maybe the exception of a couple guys, and then I was a lone sophomore that was starting. And so um, really it was a leadership of that junior class that I kind of followed, and, and we had kind of built some chemistry. And so I, we were excited going into that year, knowing that we had a good team. You know, everybody talks about, you know, Dave and and, and Coach Reed and, and the offense and the prolific nature of the offense and the spread style, which was kind of ahead of its time and all that. But you guys' defense – was was outstanding and I think improved throughout the year and obviously in the postseason run I mean right in and through the national championship game you guys were absolutely lights out defensively what do you remember about your defense as a group and and playing with coach Sowers 
Yeah, you know, I think it goes back to that chemistry going into that year. Obviously, we knew we had Dave. He he was phenomenal. We knew the, knew the offense was going to be great, but uh, we I, I wouldn't say we weren't overconfident, but we we knew we had a good defense. So I think that Washington State game was huge for us. We went in honestly thinking we could win that game and. I think after that first half, knew that uh, we could we could play um, at that level, and so I think that game was a huge game for us to realize that you know we're we're going to be good and we we can we can beat anybody, especially on the defensive side of the ball. And that Washington State game was was kind of huge for us. And so I think after that game, going into conference and stuff, we we really did have the mentality that we we've got to a top defense. And so that's kind of what I remember. We, I don't remember specific conversations, but I think we just knew as a group that, you know, we, we had something good. Break it down for us. Just, just the way that the defense operated at that time. I know you guys had some great linebackers. You mentioned playing alongside Mike Boucher, David Sermon. We've talked to Blaine McElmurray as well extensively throughout this uh, podcast series as well great safety yeah but just tell us about yeah. the just the chemistry between the three levels of the defense and, and what you guys kind of defined yourselves by you know it, it starts with coach showers a little bit he, he, by that time he'd been coaching for a while i think schematically he he thought a little bit outside of the box i, I remember even um scheme wise you know we ran a little bit of the flex and so we would We'd run like a 3-4 uh, a lot of the time. And then other times, you know, we'd run a 52, you know, front. And and then, you know, with the secondary, obviously with Blaine, and, and we had some good corners. I, there was just – everybody was – I would say I was probably the least, to be honest, as far as knowing the defense. But those guys were smart. Blaine was really smart. So was Boucher, Sermon. I mean, not only top, but those guys knew the defense well. And not that I didn't, but I think I think it was Sowers and and how he used the strengths, and he wasn't afraid to think out of the box a little bit. And so he knew he had some talent. So we did all kinds of different stunts and fronts, and and because he knew he had he had guys that were intelligent. Um, Lee Boucher was kind of the guy that would call the shots and Blaine, and so. He just had the liberty to kind of play around, and I think he put me honestly in position to make the plays. He knew his personnel well, and so he put guys in places to make plays, and so including myself. At Blackfoot Communications, we're experts at keeping your business technology up and running. From networks and security to communications and 24-7 support, our team works with you to understand your technology concerns, then deploys the right solution for your unique needs. Whether your company is just starting out or is looking to take that next step, Blackfoot is here to help. For more information, visit grizzgreats.com or call 866-541-5000. Blackfoot, connect to more. When you get into the postseason, the three-game run that you have at, at 
Washington Grizzly Stadium is as great a three-game run as you could possibly have, both sides of the ball, really. But defensively, especially mm-hmm. two shutouts, and then you gave up 14 whole points. What happened, Krebo? What, ha- yeah, what, 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 what happened in the semifinal? You guys got soft on us here in a 70 to 40, 14 blowout. But we'll blame that on the third team. <laughs> Right. There you go, <laughs> passing along. But uh, yeah. you know, when 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 you are heading into Huntington, West Virginia, to go play Marshall, I mean, you got to be coming with just an overwhelming amount of confidence, right? And 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 what did you expect that game to be like, and and the way that you would play in it? Because really, the defense had to had to be the ones to do it for a good portion of that national championship game. Yeah, you know, I think is is a bunch of Montana guys. I mean, with other guys, obviously on the team, but you know, Coach Reed always preached. You know, his favorite word. I don't know if guys have mentioned it, was vanilla, and he would have team meetings and say, "Hey, remember, we're gonna be we're gonna be vanilla," and so the guys used to give him a hard time. And basically, that was is we're gonna play low key, we're gonna be humble, we're not gonna talk, and so we were confident, but I think we kind of went in that way that we're we're the underdogs we know how good we are but we had played all those games at home most of us hadn't traveled outside the northwest to play a big game and so when all none of us had really been on that type of stage so i think we were confident but i think there was there was some nerves um first time going there i mean marshall had been there before it's in their home stadium and so I'd say personally, I can speak for everybody, just a little bit of apprehension of like, you know, how big is this stage for us? We know we're good. we got a great quarterback and our defense is proven, but we're playing on turf. We're not playing in the frozen field. Um, you know, we're playing against some talent, obviously we hadn't seen. So I think we were confident, but I think we there was a little trepidation going into that until we got into the, to the game a little bit. That's what I, I would say. The run-up to that, too, so many things fell in your guys' favor. Not only were you rolling people, but you're getting upsets that are happening all over the country that keep sending teams back to Missoula. So when you're, as an athlete, when you have to shift your mindset out of taking advantage of all the things that are laid at your feet to then having to go on the road and basically play a national championship game in somebody else's home stadium, yeah. What was that like? How did how did you get yourself ready for that mentally? Yeah, I know it's crazy. I mean, I think back then you guys may know you used to bid for games, and so you know we had guys that put up money for playoff games, and then obviously it went into seating and stuff. But you know they used to knock us for that because of how good of a crowd we had. That we had all those home games, and obviously I remember those guys coming up from down south, you know, saying after the game they never want to come back just because how cold it was. And so it it was a big change going to the to that turf coming out of the cold. Um, I don't know if guys, I guess, were a little bit nervous, but um, we were confident, though. Um, we, we had the chemistry, I guess, to answer your question. Um, I think we went in knowing we could win, and um, but we weren't overconfident or talky by any means. But uh, 
I think we we just had we had the mentality like we can win. Once we got on the plane, got over there, and got settled, I, I think we knew that it was was our time. When that game starts, I know that there's a ton of memories, and we'll get into it from you know the the kick and the, the celebration after. But during the course of this game, did you do you have any memories that stand out to you where you're like, okay, that's that's one that I've held on to now for 25 years from that that national championship? Yeah, there's probably a couple times. This is kind of a funny side note. I went in that game. I was like 253 pounds, which to me, like. I was I was too heavy, um, and so I'll never forget getting on the scale and thinking, man, I hope I can keep up with these guys because I think on paper, uh, you know, we were talented, but we knew we weren't the fastest team on the field, um, and maybe the most talented. Um, and so once you get on the field, and we kind of got a feel of the speed of those guys, we realized, you know, we're going to have to to up our game a little bit and there was definitely some plays that went our way you know there was some drop passes I remember Blaine's big hit on uh, one of those receivers that got us pumped up for me you know a couple plays I I don't remember but I remember the fumble the cause fumble um, on my side and probably the probably the biggest disappointment where we could have sealed the game. I was pretty tired at the end as the running back went around the corner and I, I went to tackle him. It's on all the videos, of course, and I just slid right down him. And, and then I think Blaine missed him again. He went for the score. Otherwise we could have stopped him and the game would have been over. So, um, but I think, um, yeah, the fumble and uh, a couple big stops. So I think, I guess I beat myself up a little bit with that game could have been, maybe ended earlier if we would have stopped him on that run play but uh and not put it in our offense's hands to, to to win the game but of course then larson would have been the hero and the script would have been changed well that's what i want to ask you about because you would have ruined your best friend's life you know if, if you didn't let andy larson run out there and and yeah. uh and and bang it through but it, it is interesting right because you guys are friends going all the way back to high school, and you already cited him as you know an influence of even going to the University of Montana in the first place. So what was it like to stand on the sidelines for a, for a game-winning field goal, and this is the guy who's kicking it, and what was your experience with him like after the fact then? Yeah, you know, Andy's really meant for that moment. Uh, I mean, you guys interviewed him. He, he lived and breathed kicking. Um, you know, he worked at it. And he had he had he had missed his kicks, you know. He had mentioned that as a, when he was younger, and so he was made for that moment. I, I think um, I had confidence in him. I think the whole team did, and um, I was upset going to the sidelines. I was pretty tired. I think a lot of us were tanked at the end there. Um, and so I was a little disappointed that the offense had to go back on the field and, and, and close the game out. But, um, yeah, being Andy's friend, and we were we were close, and we we would talk a lot before games. And kickers had different mentalities, of course. But I think Andy was a little bit different. The guys, they loved him. He was, he was a part of the team. You know, he didn't just go off on his own all the time. So when he walked out there, I think, I don't know, you can talk to him what his mentality was, but uh, – I think guys just knew that he was going to make that kick. 
and um, I, I think he he had prepared himself for that time. Of course, he could have missed it and be a different story. But uh, I guess this how it ended is kind of what what it was meant to be for for him especially. He had worked so hard, and you know he'd been kicking for four years or three years by that time. And so, um, yeah, I was just happy for him as a good friend at the time. And, um, yeah, um, I guess I was happy that, that it was him and not me, (laughs) but, uh, um, we could have been criticized for actually allowing those guys to get out there and have to win the game. But yeah, just a great story for a great guy. He's such a great ambassador too, for, even all these years for for Montana football and, and for the community. And so, um, yeah, Larson, nobody will forget that for sure in Missoula. But well, everybody, you know, they'll forget other things. He won't let anybody forget it first and foremost, right? I mean, if A doesn't make yeah. that kick, he doesn't have anything to talk about. <laughs> yeah, right. He should run for mayor. I think they were trying to get him to do that a while back. <laughs> I'd, I'd vote for him, no question. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But when you when you think about the iconic moments of that game, you mentioned Blake McElmurray's hit, certainly. Uh, there was you know the great touchdown pass to Matt Wells before halftime. There was the fourth down throw to Mike Earhart after, you know, late, late in the game. Yeah. You guys get the stops to set it up, and then there's the drive, and then there's the kick. The the one moment to me, though, that I always remember that maybe people forget a little bit is the safety, and that t- turned up to oh, be yeah. – that actually turned out to be the final margin of victory. And I think you know for the University of Montana to get a safety from two guys from Butte, Montana, Brian Toon and Randy yeah. Riley, I mean, what an epic moment in time that was, too, for the Mining City. But what do you remember about that specific moment, especially those two guys making that play? Yeah, you know, as you bring that up, it's been so long since I've kind of seen some of those clips. But, you know, I think that's what it's changed. And I'll just lead up to that answer that recruiting has changed so much. And to be competitive, you have to. But, you know, in the late 80s, 90s, you know, most of the Montana guys, and, and they still do, they either go to Montana State or University of Montana. But, you know, that team specifically had been known, you know, the Grizz had gotten most of the Butte guys. And so um, I, I, my family's from the Butte-Anaconda area, and so I got along well with those guys. And, you know, most of our defense was Montana guys, uh, which you don't see anymore, I mean, with the exception of maybe one or two other guys. But And so obviously having two guys from Butte, I think a big, probably a big deal for those guys even looking back, um, I loved having those guys up in front of me and Johansi. And um, the Butte mentality is just different. I don't know if that still carries anything. But back then, if you were from Butte, um, you know, they used to call it Butte America. You were just of a different breed. And so, um, yeah, it's a huge deal. I don't even remember that specifically until you bring it up. But obviously, that is, you're right. That is the difference. And um, I tell you, those two guys are characters too off the field, and uh, I really enjoyed playing with those guys. The kick goes through. Montana's national champions for the first time in their history. You fly back to Missoula. There's, you know, there's the landing at the airport. There's the parade. There is the uh, uh, 
Dahlberg Arena, you know, sort of convention. Uh, there's downtown the night of and, and the days following. What do you remember most about the, the 48 or 72 hours after winning the national championship and coming back to Missoula? Yeah, a little side story on that, and um, you can maybe verify this, but I, I'll never forget getting on that plane going to We'd never been on a flight like that, and I think the whole program. And that um, there was a story, I don't know whether it's true, I think it's, it is true, but there was a farmer saying that he saw us that plane go off the runway, and it looked like we weren't going to get off the runway because we had packed the house on there. We had all the cheerleaders and everybody that could get on that plane. And, of course, coming back, um, we were even loaded more. Um, and this is a story just heard that I heard when we went to fly into this to the airport, there was some turbulence, but um, uh, from my remembrance, they, they had some engine problems, and which was interesting. And I wasn't a flyer; I hated flying, and so we had to circle around all the way, kind of Kalispell, and come back around. And I just never, I never forget that flight. I I wasn't even thinking about celebrating i just couldn't wait to get on the ground but uh um <laughs> yeah there was a there was a stewardess on there one of the parents i won't say the name don't want to get them involved but she just had mentioned to my mom you know that's that's not turbulence there's something else going on <laughs> and so <laughs> you know, to be honest man when i hit the ground i was like i'm just i'm just happy to be on the ground and then after that of course you know, it's it's a little bit of a blur, um, just with the city. You know, a lot of firsts, obviously, first time for all that stuff. And so, yeah, I remember the bus ride in, and of course downtown, and you know, you're instantly a, a celebrity of some sort, and uh, you know, probably a little bit over the top, but at the same time, it's like it's such a great memory, um, just for the the team and the city. You know, you you never forget that, and for everybody that that was a part of it, it's just awesome just to see the city and the people lined. It was late too. I think it was maybe midnight. One. It was it was it was late, and of course, none of us slept that night. Obviously, it's such an awesome dynamic too to think representing for the University of Montana, representing for the city of Missoula. But like you mentioned, so many of you guys were from the state of Montana as well. So now you're representing for your hometowns. And so I'm sure then your return to Helena or, you know, Brian Toon's return to Butte or wherever it might be, Blaine McElmurray going back to Troy. Now you have all the, the entire community celebrating you there as well. So representing not only for the university and the city, but also the entire state and your hometown. That must have been a cool experience for you guys as well. Yeah, you know, as I mentioned, I, I didn't wasn't raised kind of realizing the importance of just Montana football at the university of le- level, and so you know by by the time that year came around, winning it and just kind of realizing what it meant to to the state, but also the all the the towns represented, you know, like Blaine and, and Troy and Butte and and even Helena. Um, yeah, that was a big deal. Um, and I think I kind of took it as we represented a lot of the guys that really built the program. And a lot, not to take away from the out-of-state guys, but 
it really was the in-state guys that had kind of worked so hard and and the teams before that had played and brought the program to the level that it did and of course coach reed and stuff and so i think that first championship will just always be that kind of special in the sense that it kind of just it changed everything um it changed recruiting it changed um, the University of Montana as far as Montana guys going there to play. It really set the tone and, and really it's a testament to a lot of the guys that, that kind of built it to that point. And so it was kind of the perfect storm, you know, the best quarterback that's ever played, University of Montana, and and then having all the Montana guys on that team um, um, win that championship. Yeah, it's just... It me I realized how much it meant to the city and, and then nothing everything just changed from that time going forward. So everything did change because the University of Montana then went to seven national championships in fourteen seasons and had maybe the most mm-hmm. dominant run of any team until NDSU this last decade for the next fifteen yeah. years from that point, right? From ninety five to twenty ten, Montana completely peerless in these respects. So you you obviously recognize that, you see that. What do you what is that? Uh, what emotion comes to mind, or what feeling comes to mind when you think about the turning point that that particular season was, and your place in it as you know a starter on that team, and then a, a great linebacker for the next two seasons, another national championship appearance, and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I guess humbled by it, honestly, and you know, sometimes things have a tendency to be bigger than life. And it's what it kind of felt like, you know, coming into that next year and going forward. But just even at the time, the change of the uniforms, the stadium changed, um, the recruiting and and all the different stuff. I, I still remember just from coming into my freshman year and the facilities changed even during that time. I still have the number 37 stool. I know there's guys that covet that thing. So I have, I'm sitting right by it right now. It's the old locker rooms that how many guys sat on that stool. I, and I was fortunate enough that they gave it to me. And so, yeah, man, just looking back, um, being a part of the championship, but also being part of that change with, with all the stuff going around it. It's, and of course it's, it's night and day today from what it was is it's pretty cool to look back and, be, and just be a part of that being a part of the, the first national championship, but then just being a part of that change that's kind of springboarded all the, the other teams that have come after that, that have won a championship or played in it. Coulter, in 1993, the Grizz football team was looking to host its first playoff game of the decade and just its second season of playoffs in school history. As we know, you got to have some financial backing to guarantee a home game. And former First Security Bank president Bill Boucher stepped up, spearheading a group of local business owners to guarantee that bid for UM Athletics. And that commitment from First Security Bank to UM has never wavered. Bill Boucher, Gordy Fix, several other business owners around the city of Missoula certainly had a huge influence in stepping up. Certainly some of the first true believers in what Grizz football could become and what they could mean to the Missoula community. Two years later, in 1995, the University of Montana had turned that local optimism into national prominence. 
The Grizz won the Division I AA National Championship, the first national title in the history of the university. And 25 years later, First Security Bank is still proud to sponsor the Grizzlies. First Security Bank, a presenting sponsor for Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions, a 25-part podcast series remembering that epic 1995 season. First Security Bank, proud sponsor of Grizz Athletics and the University of Montana. For you personally, I mean, you were sort of a breakout star that 95 season as a sophomore, but then one of the guys expected to be a leader on the team, one of the top producers on the team, and honestly one of the top producers in the league as well. High expectations for you. So what was I mean? What, what was the biggest differences in the '96 season when you were a junior? Because you guys had another great run, 14 and 0, all the way to the national championship game, and then Marshall again. <laughs> they had had a couple of free agent upgrades, yeah. including a guy named Randy Moss. But other than yeah. that, I mean, a tremendous season for Montana again. But what do you remember about the biggest differences between 1995 and 1996, both for yourself personally and for the team? Yeah, you know, I think we we dedicated that summer. You know, I. I, you can ask the because I wasn't known for my work ethic as far as working out, although I, I did a lot of stuff that I felt needed to be done to be successful. But that's one thing about that team. We didn't have a, a really a strength conditioning coach. Of course, that was just coming into play back then. So a lot of the guys just dedicated themselves. They were going, that class was going into their senior year. Dave was gone. We knew there'd be new guys on offense. Um, but we had some good recruits, and we knew that we they would be good. But we kind of knew as a defense that now we were the experienced ones that we were going to have to kind of carry the team at times until the offense got rolling. So a lot of those guys, to their credit, we we just dedicated ourselves that summer, kind of coming in that hey, we want to go back to back, and uh, we knew Marshall was going to be good. But uh, we just want to take care of business as far as the conference. And, and, our, and our goal was obviously to win the Big Sky, but I think more importantly was to go undefeated. And that was one of our goals, and to be the best defense in the conference. I don't know if we were statistically then. Um, and, yeah, I maybe took on a little bit more of a leadership role, but um, I kind of just – my actions as far as my play, especially because I was still the young guy and, I respected the leadership of that class. And so we wanted to go 14-0 and knew that, that Marshall was going to be kind of the only one getting in our way. The ever-present hunger for athletes is something that I've always found fascinating, something I've experienced myself, but also something that I think many athletes do. You have this common goal to reach the mountaintop like you guys did in 1995. And then when you get there, like you said, it shifts. Now you want more. You want to taste it again. You want to win another one. Yeah. So what was that element like? I mean, going from a team that was kind of the hunter, the team that was trying to knock off the Youngstown States and, and Georgia Southerns and Marshalls of the world to the team that had done it, and now all of a sudden you're in the driver's seat and you're the number one team in the country for most of the season. What do you remember about just the shift in mentality, uh, being the defending national champs and chasing that second straight title? You know, to be honest, man, I, we used to get together as linebackers, and the team by then was super close. We were a tight-knit group, which chemistry is such a huge thing on a team. Even when you lack some talent or, or not as good in certain areas, we, we were just so tight. And honestly, our mentality, it and I remember this, it didn't matter who we were playing. We just wanted to dominate. We I don't think we ever went in 
to a game underestimating or kind of like, you know, we're a better team. We had a, some, some close games, I think, against Eastern and stuff, but it wasn't because lack of focus. We we really wanted to, to dominate each game um, and be the best. I, I think guys were unselfish. Um, nobody really cared about personal accolades and all that kind of stuff. And so our main goal was, we're not going to look past anybody. We're going to, we're going to dominate and be the best we can be and, and, and look towards that championship. And I think that's what carried us is it didn't matter week to week. Um, we loved playing together. We had fun. Um, the guys got along great. And so when it came to, it didn't matter who it was, we just, we wanted to go out, have fun and, and dominate. And we knew we could if we, we played how we could play. At Blackfoot Communications, we're experts at keeping your business technology up and running. From networks and security to communications and 24-7 support, our team works with you to understand your technology concerns, then deploys the right solution for your unique needs. Whether your company is just starting out or is looking to take that next step, Blackfoot is here to help. For more information, visit grizzgreats.com or call 866-541-5000. Blackfoot, connect to more. Well, Jason, among other things, you hold the distinction of, uh, at least to this point, being our northernmost interview. You are uh, you have outdone <laughs> Dave Dickinson, who's in Calgary. Yeah. You're somewhere between right. Calgary and Edmonton, I understand. But when did you uh, make it up to Canada? Yeah, well, well what a story. I, I And I'll be quick on this, but uh, I'll take you back to a memory. When I, when I walked off the field in that national championship game, I um, – uh, I was kind of, I was, you know, in my personal life, I, I was having a real hard time, to be honest. And so a lot of distractions. My dad had died when I was in high school. My 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 adoptive dad was the only dad I knew. And so I had some real struggles going into university just as a young man. My coaches were a huge, huge help on that. And so um, I had given my life to Christ and become a Christian Right after the '96 championship game, I there was kind of an emptiness and void even amongst all the the accolades and the success a little bit. And so I had met my real dad for the first time in my whole life. He had left me when I was a kid, and that was just a surreal moment. I was 21 years old. We were it was right before the '95 season there. And so there's a lot of stuff going on at that time. And so when I'd become a Christian, give my life to Christ, I, I had played my senior year, and it had changed my life dramatically. So I got involved uh, with Christian ministry stuff quite a bit my senior year, and then um, after the NFL. And those things have taken me. God has taken me different places, and. Um, Obviously, where I'm at now is is a result of that. I, I met my wife in church, and um, we knew each other for ten, who we were for ten years. Each other was for ten years, but we it took us ten years to get married. It's kind of a fairy tale story. But she was from Canada. We lived in the states for a while, but it was just kind of one of those things we felt led to kind of come up here and get involved um, with ministry stuff up here and some overseas stuff um, in Ukraine and different places. And so my faith has kind of taken me in different places of the world, obviously, and, and 
really attribute that to why we're where we're at today. I wouldn't have picked Alberta. It's cold, way colder than Montana. Um, <laughs> and I'm living in a town that's probably 15,000 people. I love the community and, and whatnot. But, yeah, you know, it, it goes back to, to my faith in Christ and just ministry opportunities. And I feel led to kind of come up here, um, which is really the first time I, I ever lived out of Montana for any length of period of time other than living in Buffalo for a while. So, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, and so, but we're happy, content, and uh, for now, we're going we're gonna to stay put. You mentioned your time in Buffalo. Was it hard for you to walk away from the game, a game that you dedicated so much time to? Yeah, you know, to be honest, guys, I I, I know we don't have a ton of time, but uh, when I became a Christian, you know, I'd, I'd read a pamphlet by Billy Graham, a very simple, and, and kind of knelt down and gave my life to the Lord. And so from that day forward, um, my, I guess my mindset and my heart from football was different. It had been my life. Like I said, my dad started me at, at an early age more than anybody else. And it had become such an identity for me. And, you know, success really dictated um, how I would do emotionally and stuff. Sounds kind of weird and crazy, but it really did. I was, you know, and a lot of guys suffer from that when, when they leave the sport. It's just such a part of you. So when I went into the NFL, I was excited and I, I was looking forward to the opportunity. And I wanted to see if I could play. Um, but I wasn't sure that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I was obviously being led uh, through different things that led me my whole life. And so when I got to Buffalo, I loved the experience and got a good taste of what it was like and got to see if I could compete. But when I did leave, maybe I was a little bit naive, but I, my heart was really to, to get involved in ministry. And I knew I could do that in the sport. I was connected with some good people in Buffalo. But I'll never forget leaving there. There was, a, of course, they try to talk you out of it a little bit, and then they can send you places to, to play overseas at the time. But I remember just kind of having a little bit of a relief that it was a new chapter. And there was a young coach at the time who was a Christian man. and kind of came over by me as we were walking out, and and uh, he said, you know, I respect your choice, and and he knew why I was leaving was because of my faith and just a different chapter. And so that was encouraging me. I tell you, Wade Phillips was the head coach and sitting on the couch across from a legend was, was not an easy thing to do, telling him that I was leaving the team. But, of course, it wasn't like I was a first-round pick either and they're losing a ton of money. So, yeah, I was it was tough, but at the same time, it, I was excited to kind of go on to a new chapter in my life. Well, it seems as if that new chapter has gone well for you. Jason, this has been awesome. We'll get you out of here on this. You talked a little bit about the influence that this national championship had on the Grizz football program as a whole. But in general, I mean, the experience of not only winning the 1995 national championship but playing for the Grizzlies in, in full, what sort of influence has that had on your life and how much pride do you take in the fact that you guys helped lay the foundation for then what became this unbelievable run at Montana? Yeah, you know, destiny, I guess, and just really fortunate and humbled looking back. Obviously, the things 
that have helped me personally in my life and the things that shaped that in my own life at that time, uh, I think for me is the coaches and the players that really helped me as as an individual and as a young man. I, I just am so grateful for, even though I don't stay in great contact with a lot of those guys, I think about it, you know, here and there and obviously doing something like this, just, what a difference that made for me to kind of even move on and, and go on, go on in my own life. And so I, I, I'm just super thankful just to, you know, we're kind of a small fish in a big pond in Montana, but I realize even today the importance that football in the community of Missoula and the coaches and what it does. And so even after 25 years, listening to Lars and, and some of the guys, I just, it's a time I look back in my life and just so thankful to be a part of. And I mean, and I'm just one of the guys I don't feel like I'm uh, one of the main guys. I just, I really do just feel like just one little cog in the wheel of just a, a great story. And uh, just, I wouldn't be here today where I'm at today without those experiences and, and some of the relationships of the players and coaches. And so I just, Super grateful for the opportunity and even to be able to talk about it 25 years later. Well, Jason, this has been fantastic. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Yeah, you know, thank you guys for choosing me. I know there's there's, there's so many guys and players that are worthy to to talk about that season. So I'm, I'm thankful that you guys uh, allowed me to be a part of this. Thank you for listening to this episode of Grizz Greats. Be on the lookout for future episodes as they come out weekly through the end of 2020. And if you subscribe to Grizz Greats, well, you don't have to look for anything. It'll come to you, but Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions, is available on any podcasting platform, Google, Apple, Spotify, etc. And you can also, of course, listen on the website, grizzgreats.com. They will all be available for you there to play in the browser. Grizz Greats is presented by our friends at First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Our thanks to Jason Krebo for joining us on this episode. And until next time, our thanks to you for listening.